0: It's time
1: to play outside 101 ways for your young child to enjoy independent fun under the sun. And the author is Miska Reinsberger. And Miska joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Miska.
2: Hello, thank you for having me.
1: Well, thank you for being with us and helping us to understand how to help our young children have fun outdoors. And there are all kinds of things to do. 101 Ways, and I'm sure that's just the beginning, but you've opened up a whole new world. Let me read what you have written about your book. You say this This book offers 101 fresh ways for a caretaker of young children to take five minutes of setup time initiating creative, independent play outdoors using everyday objects found in a typical house or yard. The activities are easy to read, lighthearted, and often poke a little fun at the perilous situation parents of young children find themselves in. It gives a lot of tips, which are teachable moments and how the child's young mind learns, and that is throughout the whole book. Well, it sounds very, as you put, a fresh way. It sounds refreshing as well for adults who are so frustrated of how to get their kids outdoors, what was the motivation? What happened? I'm sure you were frustrated.
2: (laughs) Yep, I had one of those very typical moments. Um, It was actually last fall, and in Michigan we had just a beautiful blue sky, 80-degree day in October. And here in Michigan you know that that's about the last hurrah before we all have to downshift into hibernation mode. Um, I had taken our children for a hike in the morning, We ate lunch on the deck, um, and then I got to the point in the day I needed to get a few household jobs done. So I told the five-year-old and three-year-old to continue playing outdoors while I folded laundry, paid bills, yada, yada. Um, And I had hardly had the last sock pulled from the dryer, and I heard the little feet pattering up behind me, and the two children complained there was nothing to do outside. And in that moment, I just, I drew a blank as well. Um, yeah, well, and to be fair, I've grown accustomed to that feeling on years of low sleep and lack of coffee, and, um, the best I could come up in that moment was just, I said, look again. Um, and so that night, I went online, and I looked for a book of activities that young children could play outdoors, either with a parent or independently, and I found some really cool books detailing things like making a birdhouse with your kids or wiring together rocket kits, but I couldn't find any books that had ideas that could be carried out primarily independently. And I feel like it's these types of moments that easily fall victim to the TV or to video games. Um, so I wrote out a few new ideas that I thought might spark some creative play in the kids the next time I saw that blank look on their faces. Um, And these few ideas worked so well for the kids that it grew into 101 activities. Um, And so now it's organized. There's activities for every season. There are some simple science experiences and um, sidewalk chalk prompts. So a nice uh, variety for people to choose from.
1: Well, this high-tech generation that we're raising uh, still are kids, and they need to get out and let their imagination run So they can even be more, I guess, effective using this high-tech, all this equipment that we have today.
2: You know, you're right. I think we want to try to find a happy medium. Um, I think, I I believe there's like this perfect storm of indoor stimuli that's converging on this generation of children. You know, TVs offer 500 channels to choose from. Um, Back in my day... 37 years ago, Saturday morning cartoons were a treat, and I remember being sick one afternoon on a weekday afternoon, and my only option to watch on TV was some lady doing penmanship lessons. Um, So the options are just endless today, and video games transport kids to another dimension, and they have graphics that rival even the best kid's imagination. So it has become such an easy crutch to reach for when children need to be pacified. That's part of the reason I believe childhood is moving indoors. And I don't want to be the spreader of doom and gloom, but there was a study done by the University of Michigan uh, that found that the average American child now spends seven minutes in unstructured outdoor play and seven hours plugged into some electronic screen each day. Wow. And at the same time, the Centers for Disease Control tells us that the incidences of childhood obesity, diabetes, ADD, asthma, even nearsightedness are on the rise. So it's really critical that children, as early as comfortably possible, are allowed to play, learn, and grow up outdoors.
1: Well, you quote an author, uh, Richard Liu, is it?
2: Yes, Richard Lou. That's
1: yeah, the last child in the woods that today children suffer from this chronic disease called nature deficit.
2: Yes, and nature deficit disorder he describes as the the cost of human alienation from nature. And it's it's a it's a price that children are paying for the parents' decisions in their lives. And some of these conditions are irreversible. Um, and it we all want our children to grow up to make healthy decisions and um, and lead toward a healthy lifestyle, and it begins with the decisions that we lead them to in early childhood.
1: Well, you put it that no, there's no need with your book to purchase more toys, batteries, or DVDs. It's all within your child in the yard. It's time to play outside. So why don't we talk about, let's see, there's... The four different seasons in your book, that's remarkable in and of itself.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, there are some activities that are really seasonal dependent. So some of them you need to have those fall leaves or the snow or the new budding flowers. Um, Then there's also some that can be carried out anytime. There are some activities that um, kind of give the children a few props and then leave it up to their imagination to carry out a storyline. A few simple science experiments and experiences, and then some sidewalk chalk. Um, I can give you an example of one activity that really could be done anytime. that's called uh, the nature wristband. So you would take um, a section of duct tape and tape it sticky side up on your children's wrist, creating a sticky wristband. So then children go into the yard and they decorate their wristband with all the cool things they find in the yard. And I include also, um, I did a lot of studying and research on how the brain learns, and I've included tips for parents just in preparing their children for school or reviewing in the summertime the skills that they're learning. Um, And in this activity, um, we can use building patterns. Pattern building is a foundational math skill for early elementary students, and you can encourage your child to place their items in what's called an ABA pattern. So you would do something like pine needle, dandelion head, pine needle, dandelion head, or you could get more complex. Um, also, with this activity, um, we have a four-year-old son, and he just—he's all about collecting stuff. So I've done this activity with him, and he's had two wristbands, a tie, and a belt, and he's got himself all decked out with <laughs> all the things he collects from the yard. <laughs> oh, that
1: sounds like a lot of fun, and fun is the key, isn't it?
2: It is. We want children to have positive experiences out in nature, and there are times that children go outside, and they just run free, and their imagination takes takes them to their own places, and we don't want to force them with an activity that we artificially place on them. But this book is meant for those times when they just don't know what to do. They look in the backyard and all they see is just grass or just the same old tree and the same old sandbox. So it's in those moments where they're just not inspired that we reach for something like this, a resource to say, hey, you know what, I've got a new idea that you could use. And then, you know, children with their energy and enthusiasm take it over this novelty idea and it spurs on that fun play outdoors and they keep enjoying themselves in nature.
1: And as you put it, we can't rely as parents, we can't rely on the school systems to do it all. In fact, the school systems really uh, hamper a lot of things because no child left behind mandate uh, 30% of kindergarten classes have no outdoor recess time. That is terrible.
2: You know, that's exactly right, and I feel firmly that parents are the child's first teacher, and we have them for years at home, or we choose who our children are under the care of, and if we take those precious moments when they're young and teach them, they're playing outside, but we also help them find these teachable moments it's amazing how much there is for a child to learn just in their very own backyard. Um, it's just needing to look at a leaf in a new innovative way as a teaching tool or bugs or dirt or clouds. Um, there's so much that we can teach children, and parents need to begin to take charge of their children's learning and not leave it all up to the school systems or wait until a child turns five years old. because. in their brain, in a child's developing brain, that window of learning is actually beginning to close. Some of their potential is beginning to already close by the time they're five. So we need to get children started as soon as we can and to implement that learning in nature as well as indoors.
1: And all of the ideas in your book involve five minutes of setup time using only items found in a typical house or yard. That is crucial and you have a list of materials before each uh uh, what game or or activity activity thank you
2: yes you know when i that was kind of my criteria for this book um i wanted realistically when i looked at what my day as a stay-at-home mom is like i have so many things i need to get done that it's just unrealistic for me to take some lumber and some nails and put together a birdhouse on a just a random Tuesday afternoon. However, I can take five minutes and grab a brown paper bag, collect 10 leaves in a bag, pass that to my child and say, okay, take this bag and now go find a match for those leaves. I've got brown paper bags at home. I've got leaves in my yard. I've got five minutes to initiate this outdoor activity that my child will play and learn from. So I wanted it to be, you know, set up in five minutes, So there goes the birdhouse idea. And using items that we already have in our homes, and there goes something like a rocket kit. As cool as that might be, um, it's less doable than, you know, things that just are already found in our homes. And it just makes outdoor play a part of who we are.
1: And affordable.
2: Very affordable. You know, that's the other thing. If we have to buy these new supplies, we're not going to have That's going to become a special treat. It's not going to be part of our day-to-day life and become part of the fabric of who our children are. Um, it needs to be easy to implement. Um, and you're right with what we have happening right now in the economy um, and the lifestyle of people with young children. Yeah, I want it to be something that we don't have to go on a special shopping spree just to be able to play outdoors.
1: We have enough time for another example. Go ahead.
2: Okay. Um, So another example, you know, I I kind of alluded to is called the leaf matchup game. So you would take a brown paper bag and the parent goes out in the yard and you collect eight to ten different leaves. And they don't have to all be trees. If you don't have, you know, an arboretum in your backyard, um, there are leaves on trees There's bushes, even grasses like clover leaves um, have different unique leaves to choose from. I
1: guess weeds, too, maybe in the field (laughs) next door, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. If your neighbor doesn't mind, go sneaking over there. (laughs) (laughs) So you give the bag to your child, and you ask them to find a match for those leaves in their bag. And for for young children, what I've done is set up like a square on our front walkway, one square per child so they can have kind of a station for organizing their leaves. And then they, take, they set out their leaves and take them one at a time, and they go on a hunt around the yard. And it's so rewarding to, to hear them kind of scream with sort of this victory yell that they found a match, and they grab it, and they come running around, and they set it down, and they go off, and they go hunting for the next one. And some of them they might recognize, like, oh, that looks like the one right by the swing set. Um, and others they have to really go on a hunt for. And once they have all the matches made, then you come with them and talk together about what they have found, and then you got to think back to your middle school leaf collection days and see how many of those leaves can you identify and start to talk about um, how the edges of some are jagged and others are smooth. You know, like a rhododendron leaf would be shiny and kind of a hard leaf, and a maple is very pliable, Um, It's a great way to just have a quick conversation about the nature that you can find in the yard. And this activity gets these children sorting and categorizing, comparing, contrasting, really doing some critical thinking while they're soaking up the sun and having a great time and learning a little bit about the nature in their own yard.
1: Well, as you put it, you just need a catalyst or idea to spur on the creative juices. And, of course, outdoor play is just the right key exercise. Well, Miska, this has been very informative, uh, even inspirational. Maybe we there's hope for all of us.
2: I, I think so. You know, I think <laughs> we, if I can do it, anybody can do it. We can get these kids outside and turn off that TV from time to time.
1: The title of the book, It's Time to Play Outside. One hundred and one ways for your young child to enjoy independent fun under the sun. Miska Reinsberger is the author. Miska, tell us how to get your book.
2: The book is available through the publisher's website, authorhouse.com. Or um, I have a website for the book um, that is www.it's Time to Play Outside, all one word. Dot com. um and it is also available through any major book um, book retailer online as well.
1: Thanks for being with us, Miska, on Author Talk.
2: Thank you for having me. Have a great day.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning RX, the radio show, is on Toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning RX programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning RX comes in. Call today 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning Rx can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning Rx, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on TogiNet.com.
1: Your head. Look who's on! It's the McKeith Man Keith, and he's number one. Now you might think youth was sad right. cause he had a just tell mommy and dad right. but that ain't the case nope. it wasn't his fate nope. the wats never struggled to communicate <laughs> y'all wave your hands look who's on yeah. it's Dakota uh-huh. man Keith and he's
0: number one it's that Keith Watt show on toginet.com Wednesday nights at 8 7 central every week that Keith Juan show will have guests that share their experiences expertise opinions and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others the topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community for more on Keith Juan. And the show, go to his website, KeithWan W A N Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number
1: one keeps number one. Everybody clap, put the coda man's on. Number number one, keeps number one. Everybody clap, put the
0: coda man's on. Don't miss that Keith Wan Show. Wednesday nights at 8 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
1: The title of the book, Billy Boy, and the author is William May. Billy Boy on the cover, it also says this, a baby boomer, blockbuster, a must-read if you like to laugh, and a humorous look at growing up Catholic. And we want to welcome William May to Author Talk. Hello, Bill.
3: Well, hello, Steve. Uh before we get into this, I uh, I would like you to know right up front, you know, in, in an age of uh, performance enhancing drugs, you hear about that with athletes a lot. Right. I want you to know that uh, I didn't use any st- steroids <laughs> or any performance enhancing drugs when I wrote this book.
1: Well, we have a disclaimer, folks. Uh, we just want to set the record straight. So thank you, Bill, for doing yeah, well, that. Well, no, the
3: strongest thing I used was uh, black coffee. Black so. coffee. So. so. I just wanted to get a baseline here.
1: But you had some strong feelings about writing this book. Why did you do it?
3: Well, I think I'm like many. You know, I had a story to tell. I think mine's unique in the sense of the way I went to school and how I had to go to school and how I had to go to church. Right. You know, most of it was on foot, walking. Okay. Um, I had finished a book uh, about four years ago, um, and I put it down, and my wife said, How was it? It was a humorous book, and... uh, and I said, you know, I think I can do better. So she says, we'll do it. So I had taken the vow to love, honor, and obey. So, And the obey part was the part I paid attention to, so I wrote the book. But um, I wrote it basically for one reason, and that was to make people laugh. Um, if someone reads my book and they actually sit there and they actually laugh out loud, then I've achieved my goal. That's why I wrote it. Um, and that was the only purpose.
1: Well, you say that Billy Boy is a humorous story about a boy who was thrust into the world of the Catholic Church as an altar boy at the age of six. Right. And then, of course, uh, you spent a lot of time walking back and forth to school, and during that time, you had a wild imagination about faith, right. sex, and your future.
3: Absolutely. Well, right in the very beginning, you know, I don't, I don't know what goes on in other faiths, you know, the Muslim world or the Jewish world or the other Christian worlds or whatever faith someone may have, but in the Catholic world, from day one, uh, the drama starts right away, because you come into the world with original sin. That's the belief in the Catholic faith. So it's like, you know, it's like buying a, a shirt, and you know, one sleeve's a little longer than the other, um, you, you're a factory second, really, when you come into the world. So uh, you have to deal with that, and you have to be baptized, and it goes from there to in my case, a very strict upbringing. I um, started as an altar boy at age six. And uh, even when school was canceled because of snow, church was never canceled. So I went to church even though there wasn't school. Um, And I went seven days a week and served as an altar boy. Um, I used to think a lot walking back and forth to church about different things. Like on a snowy day, I'd imagine I was uh, with Sergeant Preston of the Yukon with his Trusty sled dog <laughs>
0: right, Yukon know, right. King
3: and uh, and his famous horse Rex and, and there would be out the five of us cuz there was a little fear out there with us but uh you know and I walk back and forth to church that way or a big thing when I was growing up was uh, footage of World War II uh uh B17s which I really fell in love with and um I could imagine you know you know flying it or being the navigator or the bombardier or a gunner and you know all the lingo that went with that, and that, that would go through my mind. So that's what, what my world was like. But but the other part of it was um, growing up Catholic right away, you learn, uh, you know, it, you, there's either the good or the bad. You know, it was, uh, it was uh, good against evil, you know, uh, avoiding sin, avoiding the temptation, um, and and trying to determine, you know, difference between the two, because there's basically two types of sin in the Catholic world. There's venial sin, which is a minor sin, and there's mortal sin, which is a major sin. And um, I guess the best way to describe that is, is if you had an argument with your neighbor and you uh, you thought about shooting the guy, that would be a venial sin. But if you broke out your 12-gauge and went over and blew him away, <laughs> that would be a mortal sin. So, you know, it's stuff like that, you know, and uh, um, the, the part that... Uh, When I started to become of age, the first uh, temptation I really had to avoid was, um, and it happened accidentally, Um, walking home from school one day, I stopped at the library and I was looking at National Geographic magazine and they had ran an article about some jungle tribe and uh, there were a couple of pictures of naked um, tribal women in there. And that was my first exposure to sex. And I used to stop in there every day. It was open three days a week after I discovered that. I would go over there in the afternoon and then in the evening, and I would take Life magazine, and I'd tuck National Geographic inside Life so the librarian wouldn't know I was looking at it. And I would look at these pictures, and it was fascinating to me. But the problem was is that that was a sin. And after a while, the sins just built up. You know, I didn't know if one peak... Represented, uh, you know, one sin, or you know, how many? If if I look at it all week, was that still one sin, or were they like uh, in one hundred and fifty? Because you know, depending on how many times I looked at these pitches, so that was the first thing that uh, really got to be a problem with me, and then having to go to confession and confess that to a priest, and you know, it gets into the book how I did that and how I did tried to disguise myself and you know and all the stuff that goes with that so
1: and a lot of the questions that you said uh, kind of caught you off guard
3: yeah yeah yeah
1: well when did you become billy boy how did you go from billy <clears throat> to billy boy
3: well that all happened with my father um you know uh, when i got to be like 12 or 13 into adolescence when i when i uh became what i guess what's known in the adolescent world is uh domestically dysfunctional, when I didn't listen, when I didn't pay attention, when I didn't do what I was told, when I used to get in trouble. You know, uh, forget to shovel the walk, forget to cut the grass, or, you know. If I, if I did something good, I was known as Billy. If I did something bad, that was my father's way of giving me a kick in the butt verbally, and he called me Billy Boy, and and that's uh, that's how the title of the book came about. But uh, uh, I had a great dad. Don't misunderstand me. You know, but he had names for his Greek we had a uh, an old black car that wouldn't wouldn't start half the time. He called that the Black Beauty. And we had a furnace that didn't put out heat half the time. Was Big Bertha, and uh, then there was me, Billy Boy. So he had names for, <laughs> for, for, for things that gave him grief, and I think that was the biggest one. But
1: well, um, you admit you did some stupid things along the way, and of course that got you in a lot of trouble.
3: Oh yeah, um, I was um, the, the problem. One of the problems I had was um. I, I I used to get my information from, um, in the wrong place at the wrong time from the wrong people, and it was usually from a guy a little older than me, you know? And it gets into that and into the story about sex and how sex works and, uh, what I had to do to, uh, win the love of a girl and all this type of stuff. And, uh, um, and that's basically what it's woven around. Um, my perception of my faith, uh, the mystery, the guilt that went with it, um, how I got out of those jams, I always prided myself with being able to be one step ahead of my parents or my teachers of the law, and usually I wound up being two steps behind. But that's basically what the story evolves around. Um, I think Billy Boy uh, answers the question, why all all the boys don't go to heaven. Um, That's basically what the the book answers.
1: Now you say that... uh... Even if you finish last in your high school class, you can finish first in life. Uh, explain that statement that you've shared with us.
3: Well, I wasn't a good student. Um, and most of the time it was my fault. Um, a teacher once told my mother if I had spent as much time looking in a book as I did out the window, I'd be the brightest boy on the face of the earth. But I wasn't a good student, so I did. I finished basically last in my high school class. But all through growing up, I had a love of aviation, and I think I told you it had to do with watching those B-17, World War Two uh, film coverage footage. And um, I, um, I wanted to fly, and I graduated from school, and there was a program. And when I graduated from school, uh, things were getting into the news, countries we never heard of, like Vietnam and Laos. And at my time, when I graduated, uh, there was the draft. And if you didn't go to college... You'd be drafted for it if you went to college. If you didn't go to college, you could be drafted. I didn't want to be drafted, and, uh, you know, I'd had enough walking because I used to walk back and forth from church to school. So I enrolled in a program that the Navy had for uh, aviation, and uh, if you passed certain exams, you would be sent to um, Aircraft Electronic Navigation School, which was in Millington, Tennessee. And I passed that, and... Um, was sent to Millington, and I I left uh, Tennessee and went to Spain, and was assigned to a flight crew in Spain. And I realized my uh, boyhood dream to fly in the military, and it was a big deal for me. And I I enjoyed that tremendously.
1: Well, so. Congratulations and thank you for your service.
3: Yeah, the thing that the thing that another thing where, where I really came of age is in high school. One of my, you got to understand, I, I grew up in Massachusetts and went to high school in Massachusetts, and I used to hitchhike back and, uh, from home. From, I, got, I got a ride to high school, which was 12 miles from my house, and I'd have to walk a mile from where I got dropped off to the school, but in the afternoon, I would hitchhike home 12 miles every day, um, and that's what I meant about walking, and I, I walk so much, that's why I, did, I wanted to fly, not walk, I didn't <laughs> want to match, <imagine>. but... <laughs> um, one of my best friends in high school was a, uh, a black fellow named uh, Jerry Chester. He's still a friend of mine. He lives in Pennsylvania you now. Um, you know, either my skin got darker or uh, his got lighter because we really didn't pay attention to the color of our skin. And we became very good friends. And he signed my yearbook. He signed it uh, to a good kiddo who I enjoyed four long, bad years with. Mm. And he was a good guy. And and how this all came full cycle to me is that I got off the bus to to go to school in Millington, Tennessee, which is just outside of Memphis. I got off the bus in Memphis and walked into the bus station and to use the men's room, and I saw there were two men's rooms, and there were two um, ladies' rooms, and there were two water fountains. There was for white and for colored, and especially the... Uh, the water fountain struck me because the white one was located higher than the black one or the colored one. It was my colored. And the message was very clear. Now, I had seen, you know, uh, items in newspapers and, and uh, television news about segregation in the South, but I'd never seen it close up and personal. And I walked, I walked after I used the men's room, I walked into uh, the Memphis bus station. And at that time, there were three horseshoe counters, shaped like horseshoes. And there were a few tables. And when I walked in, uh, I didn't notice it right away, but there were three black men, young men, one at each counter. And um, there were three young black ladies sitting at each table. So I sat down and I sat a seat over from in the middle horseshoe counter. And I said hello to the black fellow there. And he said hello back. And I noticed nothing was going on. Nothing was going on in the kitchen. It was very quiet. So I I looked at this guy, and I says, boy, the the service in here is terrible. And he didn't have a chance to answer me because the doors opened with a glass door, you know, see-through door. And the police came in and took all seven of us out there and took us to the station. Um, And I I was really worried because I thought I'd be discharged, you know, dishonorably from the service. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. But the uh, show patrol came down and, and got me, and I was released to them, and they took me out to the base, and that was my introduction to the segregated South. Um, about a month later, I was on a downtown city bus. My father taught me the basics of leading a good life, and what he felt was a good life, like um, you know, uh, walking out on the outside of this. On the outside of a lady, when you walk down the street, you always got a door. If a lady walked into the room and there were no seats present, you stood up and gave her hers. And I was on this Memphis bus, and the bus was really crowded. And at that time, um, blacks had to sit in the back, whites sat in the front. And I was like four seats back, and this black lady, an elderly black lady, got on. She had a shopping bag, handled type shopping bag in each hand. And I uh, had on wire rim glasses, and uh, she was really elderly, and there was no place to sit. So I stood up and offered her my seat, and she looked at me at first and then smiled and sat down and said, Thank you. And as soon as that happened, the bus had started to just move. The bus stopped. The bus driver got me and kicked me off the bus. So wow. that was uh, <laughs> that was my introduction to the cell. So.
1: Well, That's- that is a theme that runs throughout the book, uh, and you believe that obviously doesn't matter the color of your skin. Right. Nothing to do with that and your friendship with your good black friend. Uh, you even say this, uh, even for the reader, reader that doesn't know me, they go on a journey with me into a past that seems at times hard to believe. And I'm yeah. sure, yeah. though, the reader will find certain parallels comparing their adolescence to mine.
3: Absolutely absolutely um I, I get into uh and i think some people experience this i don't know uh, when i was in the eighth grade um other than looking at those pictures in national geographic um i didn't know very much about the birds and the bees i knew that uh the birds always came back to Capistrano on a, one particular day every year and uh the sighting of the first robin in, in my town in the north was a big deal in the spring. And as far as the bees went, I knew there was a queen and there were drones and they served the queen and they made honey and they had a hive, but that was it. And this kid moved into my eighth grade class who taught me a lot of things about the birds and the bees that uh, weren't necessarily true, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I sucked it all in. And I, you know, made it a part of my life and, uh, there's a part in my book that uh, gets into what I call my two-finger instant bar removal, which was a technique used to uh, really, you know, if you really wanted to make it with a girl, you had to use this technique, which he taught me. And there's a part in my book where I was practicing this with one of my mother's uh, bras and a <laughs> chair in the kitchen, and uh, she came home early from work and caught me. And uh, it was just one of those... Bad situations in life that you wish never happened, but it happened. So,
1: and that's why they called you Billy Boy. Absolutely, and that is the title of your book. The author is William May. Bill, tell us how to get your book.
3: Well, it's available, you know, online or at your major uh, book dealer. It's available in three ways: uh, hardcover, cover, and uh, ebook. And I'm sure. Uh, you know, you can find it there, and, and look for the the author, uh, William May, and also look for a sexy girl standing in front of a white church and a, and a beautiful uh, sky behind her. Um, and that's the way you can find it. Um, and I can assure any reader that uh, if they want a good laugh, they'll get a laugh reading this book.
1: Well, thank you, Bill. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk.
3: Thank you, Steve, and uh, have a good day.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Coming live from Seattle, Washington, home of the biggest and best internet companies on the World Wide Web, it's SEO Radio, starring Brandon Knott. Tuesday nights at 10 Central, 8 p.m. Pacific on TogiNet.com. S-E-O Radio. This pioneering internet and social media entrepreneur will share some of his most super efficient opportunities with you, small business owners, and future entrepreneurs to help you build a future like Amazon or Expedia Online. There's never been a marketing strategy that's been so effective at allowing small businesses to compete with the big boys. And Brandon now helps you learn these easy as one, two, three. S-E-O. More on Brandon check out his website seattleorganicseo.com. seo radio Get set for SEO Radio starring Brandon Nog Tuesday nights at 10 Central 8 p.m. Pacific on Toginet.com.
4: Do holidays and celebrations get you down and leave you feeling frazzled then join Sandy Fowler and her guests on Heartfilled Holidays every Monday at noon 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Sandy will help you discover the secrets to having the celebrations you've always dreamed of while adding fun and meaning to your life. From Valentine's Day to Christmas to special family events, Sandy Fowler will show you how to put the fun and meaning back into those special days by taking a look at what we can do to turn the upcoming holidays into cherished memories and show us how to allow it to intertwine with everyday life. For more on the show, Sandy, and to receive Sandy's Holiday Happiness Booklet, go to HeartfilledHolidays.com. Then get set to discover the secrets to creating happy holidays and happy everydays by joining Sandy Fowler and her guests on Heartfilled Holidays every Monday at noon, Eastern Standard Time on Toginet.com.
0: Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Authorhouse. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world.
1: The title of the book, Immediacy, and the poet is Rod Cockrum, and his book of poems titled Immediacy, and we welcome Rod to Author Talk. Hello, Rod.
5: Hello, Steve. How are you doing?
1: Good to have you with us. Uh, We're going to listen to a few of your poems in a little bit and have you comment on them, give us a a good feel of your writing style and your... uh, thinking about these different uh, experiences and events in your life that have motivated you to write poetry, uh, I want to read a couple of things you have written. You say, Immediacy is my expressive responses to nature, places, found and lost loves, art, time, passion, longing, depression, and emotion, and random thought. Some poems express my internal thoughts. Others, my reactions to personal experiences. Others are pure personal wordplay and imagination well it sounds yeah. very interesting and and you're going to take us on this journey of emotions what what prompted you to publish
5: well i uh noticed that i was accumulating quite a few and uh i was working on a play and uh i got about half through with the play and i figured i had more poems ready to go so i thought i'd publish a book instead of trying to finish the play and get that produced and so I went that way.
1: Well, you give some uh, things to think about uh, in your book. You say this about poetry. Poetry's power is contained and effective and best when its conciseness reveals entirely the subject's values. Now, just talk about that statement and help us learn more about what you're feeling and thinking.
5: Uh, well, uh the brevity of poetry has to uh, be concise and there has to be a lot of quality within the stanzas before the emotion or the subject can be revealed or obvious to the reader. Now, in, my, in a novel, it might take a third, a half of a chapter to do that, you know, to introduce the character, to get the character into a situation, get the character talking before. Uh, you know what's going on before you know the plot, before you know the character's feelings or his relevance to uh, what the writer's trying to say. But in a poem, you can do that three stanzas if you edit properly and, uh, you know, keep uh, track of your phrasing.
1: Right, so it's this carefully phrased words that uh, you have to create in... I guess, carve into your emotions,
5: Yes, and uh, emotions have to uh I mean the term literary, rock and roll with the words. The words have to intertwine with the emotions, and it all kind of has to flow because if you're very emotion very emotional on a couple of stanzas, then you switch to a declarative, more a way of phrasing. It's too bulky. It gets too weird, and uh, well, I was taught that's when the reader loses interest. If uh, the rhythm changes too quickly, if the subject changes too quickly, uh, the reader the reader figures this is too much work. You know why, why did they do that? So it's best to keep a nice flow, you know, to the stanzas.
1: And you believe that your poems of. Uh don't, they don't. Well, they they are what you say sensible reading. They're they're not just so eclectic.
5: Yeah. Yes. I uh, I do use abstraction, but I don't take the mind into some weird corner it's never been before and leave it there. You know, I bring try to bring it back to clear thinking, and uh, and not how do I say that and not i uh, lead up people on a, a reader on a weird journey into uh, something totally weird, you know. If I do, I bring them back.
1: And for the most part, you're serious. You would call your poems uh, serious uh, uh, writing.
5: Yeah, it's a pretty serious book. It's not dark and uh, moody, some of it is, but it's more like, best adjective, is serious reading.
1: With a few that are humorous?
5: Yes. I got humor into morning Nixon, which probably wouldn't be too funny to some people uh, and uh why not a why not at least take the castle woman I thought was pretty funny, more humorous and funny
1: well why don't you share one with us right now and uh comment on what you were feeling when you wrote it uh, just to kind of uh give us uh, a View from the poet.
5: Okay, uh, this poem is called Beach. This is uh, from a long time ago, and it was from a a writing exercise that I took from school. It said, write down exactly what you see and then embellish it just a little bit. So this is the idea behind Beach. Give me flights from the consummate and tedious the dances to pleasant extremes on the beach sand pauses each of my quickened steps the ancient waves hush endless lappings through my eyes the fat man mocks my stride and the old man grins too long runaway negro babies still envy the ice cream truck that ignores them all day all day sharks come sharks go the window screens open and shut on storied streets until tourist streams fill the house and end the daydreamed day. The young girl whispered before I knew her, this is the way it is, this is the way it is, until terror finally brought the television night so far from the beach. Now memories dance the beach like spring lilies beneath the frost wilted and large and harried elegance. The whispers grow against me like Pacific wind against L.A., like sugar against a baby, like love against the lonely, like a heart against the heartless or the moon against a desert town. Her startled love fades my effortless steps on the beach. The sun-filled memory coalesces to the harsh present and grates across unwanted time. The encompassing sun now gels amidst the whirling presence of existence. My gasps reach hopelessly for the intoxicating sun. Fat man mocked because the sun drove him down. The old man grinned because he heard the steps of seagulls across vandal-like roads that once led to the beach. The young girl whispered because her life had come undone. Beach memories fade; those tender days, too much to bear. Now that one was a little more abstract than usual. Um, uh, it's meant more for reading than reading aloud. I don't know why I chose that. <laughs> it, uh, it it's a little more. Uh, it's a little less on images and more on uh, an image, and more on wispy thoughts. You know, abstract.
1: Well, at the same really? time, uh, you took me to the beach. I mean, I was visualizing some of the things you were talking about, and it r- just focused me. So, you know, you, yeah. at the same time, you accomplished your purpose.
5: Oh, great. Yeah. There was there's three things in there. Uh, I saw a bunch of black children uh, hanging around this ice cream truck. None of them had any money to buy anything. Uh Fat man, uh, very large man, mocked my stride. I was struggling trying to walk through the sand, you know, we kind of laughed at each other. And uh, there's this old man with a real weird grin on his face. So those three things (laughs) kind of, you know, I embellished those three things. And then the young girl was another thing from my memory.
1: You talk about Vincent Van Gogh just being a great focus of yours, almost an obsession.
5: Yeah, he has been for a long time. Uh, I just I was just amazed by his paintings ever since I was a child. And uh, I think I've read every biography that's been written about him. And, uh, you know, the odd thing is I only like about a third of his paintings. The rest are very strange and uh, unstructured. But he was such, he's so far ahead of his time as were a lot of the other Impressionists. Uh, Uh, and and expressionist and he just started something so new he and monet that uh and he was so underappreciated for it and and he had such an organic approach to what he was doing you know and he just kept on going and never never mind all the criticism and all that alienation by his family, except his brother. His brother did not abandon him. But, uh, so, uh, I don't know. It's just he's always been a model for uniqueness. You know, it's what I strive for when I write, when I do anything, really. I want something different every day. <laughs> you know?
1: Right. You talk about our insignificant experiences are sometimes the most valuable. Now, does that in a, a lot of your poems, this these experiences of life that we might not think are very significant?
5: Yes, I have a uh, couple in here are uh, about a. Uh, uh, it's not in the title of the poem at all, but I took a hike from I was camping in the mountains. And I took a hike up in the mountains. That's all it took. And that motivated me for that poem. And another time I was driving cross-country real fast. Not, not speeding, but uh, you know, I didn't stop for any breaks. And that turned into a poem. So it's these little things that accumulate and you think about them years later, and all of a sudden they have such a vivid meaning. In their and I'm sitting there writing, and I recall all that. And uh, so, instead of a large, affecting uh, experience, it's a small thing that I, you know, you illuminate on, and you take and get value and learn lessons from.
1: We all define values in many different ways, don't we?
5: Oh yes, yes. That's what makes life interesting.
1: And so, you're trying to help us see uh, to help us see through your eyes or our own eyes.
5: Well, I guess I think that's what art does it uh It gives you something to relate to. It's not necessarily there to uh, make a model for other people to live by. It can do that. It's not ne- art good pieces of art. art necessarily there to admire admire it because they relate to it you know it's something that uh is reaching out and touching them
1: do you have another one so, you could share with us
5: yeah i have one here i i, I uh it's very sympathetic it's called oh africa and we see every day on this dark continent something going wrong whether so it's star four or starvation or uh more Islamic unrest and extremism. But I I focused on uh, more tribal aspects. So, uh, and I think a lot of people see all this and they just let it go by. And I just couldn't let it go by. I had to express something about the strange, wonderful country. Oh, Africa. Torn from ancient, familiar fields and huts black fathers, mothers, and black offspring huddled and starved on others' unwanted rocky ground, so harsh that no grass could find a root, so hard that feet cut when they fled flailing swords and slender broken clubs of white greed. Oh, Africa, your ancestral icons were shipped too far to shout back that fear or were impounded so harshly or shot so dead that emptying, bouncing tribes now turn to death-sick ghosts, pallid remnants of invaded wealth. Every son and daughter removed for necessary reasons. They could no longer at home plow, plant, harvest, hunt, mend, build, run, walk, breathe, live. Cloud-like dust clings to hard-driven skin, faces, legs, and backs. Colorfully beaded breastplates catch the desert sun that shines on awesome blackness in a memory dance. Cry, Africa, time won't heal your warriors, open maddening wounds or end tears of victimized mothers or give a path to crazed youth. They march suffering across the world's view until disbelief stalls others' concerns. Your brothers, sisters, children, and kings died by the roadside, starving amidst the lushness where their forebears thrived. The groans and whispers against the glow of the night's fire say, gone fleeting gazelle, gone-feathered gull, Gone-shielding hides, the empty sand lives for no one, The dying trees sing no song. Visitors trampled the silky green horizons of your plentiful beauty and plundered every wild and woeful age that made you rich. Highborn huntsmen, diamond-fevered pillagers, and land-hungry world travelers gorged incessantly on your burgeoning land, well, and left for sweeter ground. Your blackest soul of souls became a useful paradise for the dominating factor, a commodity for the modern age to barter been consumed. Africa, your brothers and sisters still stand confused and angry wherever they're forced, wherever they land. Their features contrast starkly with the flow of the middle ground saboteur and the absurd normality of the domineering static. Only a pernicious implosion of spirit survives such alienation and narrow-focused command. So the cycling of vicious essentials festers and corrupts all that need the opposite. Tribe opposes tribe. They oppose them. He opposes him. She opposes her until the bludgeoning defines an era. Africa is gone. Flashing, traveling cameras replace the hidden, dusty, wildness Cities, towers mock the ocean's lulling shoreline. Well-recorded tribal remnants gaze longingly but empty at the disappearing once treasure-filled jungles. Only a story now of nurtured ancestors. Oh, Africa, your future was apprehended. Transformed and digested by foreign interests so foreign that you became a violent entertainment. A passing fancy of unprofitable hobby unidentifiable in bare feet, dug into your own ground.
1: Thank you, Rod. Very, uh, well, you took us on a journey to Africa, no doubt, with all the controversy (laughs) and and all the uh, mystery of Africa.
5: Yeah, even the people who go there and study it come back bewildered still, you know.
1: The title of this book of poems is Immediacy. There are 32 poems, and the poet is Rod Conkrum. Rod, tell us how to get your book.
5: You can get it from my publisher's website at AuthorHouse.com and at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and Borders on their websites, too.
1: Well, thank you for being with us on Author Talk.
5: Well, thank you very much, Steve.